0: Welcome to the 389th episode of the Jamie Delaney Plant-Based Wellness Podcast. My name is Jamie Delaney and I'm your host. I'm a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete living in Southwest Florida. Welcome and thank you for listening. Well, uh, the humidity has made its way to Florida, so we're springing into summer very quickly. May gives us a few days of humidity, a few days of lesser humidity, and then we get full bore humidity until December. So... Takes a little bit of time to get used to it, but after that, it's all good. Just heat training. So, I've got a little, little talk about hydration and heat training um, a little later on. I'd like to send out kudos, congratulations to Erica, a member of our practice who uh, ran the half marathon, the Stuart half marathon. She just finished a 10K and said a personal best and as well as Cindy, uh, another member of the practice, came back and ran her first 5k after a a long period of time and set a personal record. So the cardiology plant-based wellness practice is going strong and people are continuing to run into the summer and the spring. So um, we got several people training for the Stuart Marathon next spring in March. Um, If you want to follow some of the training, you can go over to Facebook, uh, there's a page, Plant-Based Riders and uh, Plant-Based Striders, um, and you can join that group. There's, uh, You don't have to be a member of the practice, but you can um, log some training with us and show us where you run. It's always good to have additional motivation, and we post some pictures of food as well along the way. I think it's really important for runners, um, you know, um, anytime I listen to a podcast and hear... Ultra runners or distance runners or people that are improving, you know, after they get their running technique and they get their cardiovascular system in shape, it's all about nutrition. And, you know, I wish I would have had my nutrition better. I can't wait to get my nutrition better, me, you know, myself included. Um, I think a lot of people, when they're young, they get away with a lot eating sweets and junk food. But as you get older, you recover better if you're eating well. So plant based nutrition is a vital role in running. Um, you know, into your later years of life. So, you might get away with it early. I'm going to say you don't because I'm going to say that you've kind of ruined your peak if you're running now on junk food. I think you could run better. I don't care who you are, but um, you might not get sick and you might think you recover okay. But as, as certainly as we get older, um, you know, we're not running just to run, we're running to mitigate lifestyle diseases, improve cardiovascular fitness. So, there's no real reason to. Clog your arteries while you're running, and you can't outrun the bad diet. Just, just no way. I think if you're in shape and you have good body mass um, and you have a lot of, you know, have muscle, you can get away with more, longer. But you you not run a bad diet, and certainly people, um, you know, there's certain people that um, the bad nutrition is a lot faster to take over um, than than others. So uh, with nutrition um, and Calories being on the forefront, there was an article this week posted in the Journal of American College of Cardiology in the Cardio Oncology session. And that says something right there. the fact that we have to have a cardiology oncology joint um, paper kind of tells you that um, a lot of what happens in on- the oncology world sets people up for cardiovascular disease. and cardiovascular disease is still the number one killer. so, it's nice, I guess, to see cardiology oncology because we're not pigeonholing people into either just having breast cancer or heart disease. Um, typically, um, the age when cancer starts, a so lifestyle disease is the age when cardiovascular disease start. But often the drugs that are used to treat cancers and specifically breast cancer have a cardiotoxic effect and can put people into heart failure, can, can cause cardiomyopathy or weakening of the heart muscle that is permanent can also uh, cause cardiovascular disease, and certainly radiation can cause coronary artery disease. And in particular, this study looked at um, women who had been given chemotherapy and looked at time-restricted feeding to see whether or not their body mass index improvement, decreased fat mass, um, led to a better outcome. So these women were older than 60, they had some cardiovascular risk factors, typically their body mass index was greater than 25, um, and they had received a cardiotoxic treatment, typically anthracyclines, which is a typical chemotherapy given to breast cancer uh, patients uh, for one to six years. If they had diabetes, uh, they were excluded from the study. So I think it's interesting right away. They call time-restricted feeding as opposed to intermittent fasting because all that gets muddied, as we've talked before, of what constitutes fasting. Uh, and they asked them not to eat anything, but or I'm sorry, they asked them to, to, to eat between the hours of 12 p.m. and 8 p.m. And they looked then at um, outcomes such as their glucose, total cholesterol, HDL or good cholesterol, blood pressure, waist circumference, They did MRIs to look at the fat mass intra-abdominally called the visceral fat mass, fat around your organs. Uh, They looked at whole body fat mass um, using a bioelectric um, method. And the interesting part is they invited 228 people to the study, and only 22 said yes. And of those 22, most of them had a body mass index greater than 70, 25. Most of them were older than 60. The average age was 66, and the average uh, body mass index was 31. Most of them had taken the chemo for, uh, it was about three years after they had taken chemo. 50% of the people had received radiation. 91% of them uh, percent of them were on tamoxifen. They didn't ask them to change their diet in any way. They just asked them to only eat between the hours of 12 p.m. and 8 p.m. And when they looked at the fat mass, there was some of, somewhat of a decrease. The body mass index didn't decrease. Um, but overall, um, it was felt to be a positive effect because, again, there was a visceral fat decrease, and visceral fat is associated with a poor outcome in breast cancer because fat makes hormones, and a lot of other growth factors and and increases uh, inflammation. So all of those factors increase the risk of breast cancer recurrence, not to mention increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Certainly, the study was limited by only following up people eight weeks, um, but again, they did show some decrease in fat mass, which is a positive outcome. One of the things that they did do, um, and I feel is the most important, is they had follow-up calls. So they, they had a call from a dietician um, in the beginning, and then they had a call from staff members at week one, three, and six. And then they had twice daily automatic text messages asking them to respond with the time the day they started and stopped eating. Um, and phone calls also involved discussion of adherence, symptoms, um, you know, how things were actually going. and adherence was you know determined whether these whether the participants actually responded uh, to the to the calls and and the reality of is most of the people did respond to the calls and you know I, I think that's the the biggest success to this study um, was that there was you know it wasn't just people were said okay do um, e between the hours of 12 and eight and then we'll check in with you in eight weeks with um, those certainly a call, but I think even more importantly, with a text message that they needed to respond to, there was a high degree of accountability that they were going to restrict when they ate uh, to, to the hours that, that they said in the study. And obviously, anybody that participates in the study kind of wants to do the study. So, it, you know, there's a bias towards success, but I, I, again, I believe that it was, um, you know, helped a lot by Having people people call in and have the text messages because again accountability. Twelve to eight—that's um, eight hours, uh, eight-hour window of eating. It's not much different than if you got up at eight and you ate to six. So two hours, I don't think, makes or breaks. You know, when we say time restricted eating, I think the interesting thing of picking a time between twelve p.m. and eight p.m. was that they overlapped a typical snack period. So for these people, um, they had some mindfulness that they weren't going to start eating until lunchtime, but they also had a mindfulness that they were going to uh, be going into the evening hours and have text messages, and so they were more like, I I would guess they were less likely to start in the snacking uh, that would typically occur if people ate uh, the general time periods, and, and that most likely accounted in my mind, for the loss of uh, a little fat mass. But, again, not enough to show a BMI difference in, in the eight weeks because, again, nobody told them what to eat just, you know, to eat between these these hours. And there there have been several studies recently uh, in other patient or just general patient populations. There was a study in the New England Journal of Medicine that um, had 139 people, only 118 completed a um, what they would call an intermittent fast, eating between the hours of uh, 8 to 4 p.m. And um, again, they didn't, no body weight change, no, no real changes in that. And most of the studies that have come about lately that have really looked at time-restricted eating haven't shown any benefit to overall weight loss or change. And, and I, and I kind of go back to um, real-world participation So, just like Weight Watchers or any other dietary method, if you perceive it as being a short duration event, a study, you know, I want to lose 30 or 40 pounds, I can do anything for a short period of time, then you can, you know, get these hours, these different hours of feeding in, cut off a couple hours of eating, or change the time period. But, real world, you know, people go to work, people come home, people have to, you know, socialize, eat dinner together. Um, you know, I, I think that makes that much, much more difficult. I think that in some respects, time-restricted eating, if, you know, also you're going to, you know, put a fence around what you're going to eat in that uh, period of time, obviously junk, you know, junk food um, or high-calorie, high-dense foods or keto foods during that time. Um, is ultimately not going to get anybody anywhere and it all you know ultimately comes down to any of these programs as far as weight loss it's energy consumed and you know your body sees energy as energy and too much restriction will slow things down um, but where the calories come from as far as energy goes and weight loss it doesn't really matter that much I think adherence is, you know, where it comes to. And then we talk nutrition. We're talking about the health of something. So, you know, if you ate 1,200 calories of Twinkies a day, you would lose weight. But would you be healthy? No. If you ate 1,200 calories of brightly colored fruits and vegetables, then obviously now you're adding to your health as well as decreasing the caloric intake, your caloric intake and ultimately losing weight. And I'm not suggesting 1,200 calories. I just brought that up as far as a number. You know, that was the old-time registered dietitian diet that everybody was put on a 1,200-calorie diet. Um, Everybody thought they stuck to it. Most people thought they did less. Most people didn't lose weight. Therefore, they didn't restrict to 1,200 calories. It basically comes down to what people actually consume and what they're aware of. And that's what makes dietary questionnaires so inaccurate because, you know, you can't come up with how many calories that you truly eat um, you know, if you were eating four apples and two potatoes and, um, you know, a can of beans, you could, but if you're eating something with a sauce and, and, you know, different ways things are prepared, uh, oil, how you cook them, it adds a lot of calories. And so that's where it becomes very inaccurate. Most people don't realize, you know, that nuts and seeds add a lot of calories to foods. Um, cooking with oil adds, you know, five to 800 calories a day to, to foods, Nobody counts those things. People don't count what they're standing up and eating. They only count, you know, if they happen to sit down. So, you know, a lot of people will tell me that they intermittently fast, but um, what that means is they, they don't eat that. They may eat two meals where they're actually sitting down with the plate, but they snack all day through it. So they're basically um, grazing with intermittent meals, um, which typically doesn't work out. The best success we've had in our practice by far are those people that um, have a texting dialogue with me or a frequent check-in. And it's really about the texting dialogue. Um, my diabetics that want to get off of insulin uh, and, and uh, normalize their body mass index text me every morning with uh, the blood glucose of that morning and the glucose of the evening before. And so there's an accountability um, to do that but we also use that to look back as feedback and say, you know, what did you consume the day before? What threw you off um, today versus yesterday? And, and we also use those numbers to decrease their insulin until we get them off of insulin because the last thing we want is somebody having high numbers, but, but more importantly, we don't want people to become hypoglycemic. And you never really know exactly how somebody's gonna ex- respond. Um, until we get those numbers, so uh, if people are eating a really bad diet and then they then they go over to a you know a really good plant based diet, those numbers kind of fall down pretty quickly. Typically, they occur um, glucose readings and weight occur in a stair step type fashion. So they'll um, there will be you know a plateau and then they'll have a drop in their morning glucose and their evening glucose and then they'll have a plateau and then they'll have a drop in their morning and, and evening glucose. And and you know as they lose weight and refine their diet those number drops aren't quite as quick and you know you have to be patient but that's where the feedback and encouragement comes in and you know where we really get success people that do it on their own or say i got this um, typically um, don't um, have as much success the other thing that I've seen that, that people don't have any success with is the glucose monitors. Now some of the companies are saying, you know, and you can see them online, people wearing 24-hour-a-day glucose monitors that download to an app, and I believe the company will give you 7 to 14 days, depending on your insurance-free, and then you have to buy it, and they're very expensive, but people people don't look at them their doctors don't look at them and they don't look at them so they have this wonderful glucose reading coming into their app but they don't know what to do with it their doctors don't look at it until you know two or three weeks later and so how does it how does it help um it it helps the company that makes the glucose monitor but that that's about it um titrating insulin or titrating meds as traditional uh, endocrinologists do you know, in the rears that far uh, without any feedback or just, it's basically titrating insulin up, not down. Uh, Very few people uh, ever, ever go down on their insulin that way. So, uh, you know, I'm a huge proponent of normalizing body mass index to decrease your risk of cardiovascular disease and decrease your risk of cancer progression um, or um, return or, you know, cancer to, to, to decrease your risk of cancer in general. But I think that um, you need to work with someone that allows you to um, work your nutrition around your lifestyle. So if you're somebody that goes to work or you're somebody that travels to work, um, you have to eat in the cafeteria, uh, you have to take your lunch, um, you travel. Those are things that really get in people's way um, as far as long-term maintenance of gains that they make Uh, while changing their nutrition and of course you know plant-based nutrition is is by far the way to go uh, in in my eyes so with that being said today on twitter i saw i'm always kind of looking for something to talk about in the podcast and sometimes you know it seems like i'm I'm a little uh, low on information but then all of a sudden You know, right before I get ready to start getting things ready, something comes up. But today on Twitter, there was this giant argument slash discussion because the governor of, uh, I'm sorry, a representative from uh, Massachusetts, James uh, McGovern, um, made made a statement that they would like to have improved nutritional training for all medical schools. Uh, and he went on to say that you know medical students only get 19 hours of training and nutrition throughout their medical career, um, and there's a big diet-health correlation, and we've got to do something to change things. like, hallelujah. I thought everybody would be so excited. Yes, we need to drive it home that nutrition is the key to health. All this other stuff is ancillary, and we could decrease medications and decrease procedures and decrease hospitalizations by just changing people's nutrition what would that do to the economy? You know, decreasing hospitalizations, decreasing procedures, decreasing uh, pharmaceutical prescriptions. How could that, you know, no, 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 we can't do that. But nevertheless, um, he must have made a pharmaceutical um, lobbyist mad or something. But anyway, that's what he proposed, which I think is a great idea. But where would you put it in the curriculum? Um, the funny part about it, everybody jumped on board that that's not, you know, that doctors shouldn't get involved in nutrition and, and you should leave it to the registered dietitian and they should teach doctors how to refer to registered dietitians and they should really stay out of it and doctors don't know anything about nutrition and, you know, they should just stay in their pigeonhole of prescribing medications and doing procedures. And I guess, you know, um, I guess to some degree um, that's probably... Uh, has a, a little validity because where would you put this a, a nutritional education treatment in training? Uh, because we are owned by the pharmaceutical companies and we make our money doing procedures. And so if you taught me a bunch of nutrition, then obviously um, the people going into medical school would, would markedly go down and nobody wanted to practice medicine and on and on and on because just helping people through diet and, and nutrition is you know, just boring. Uh, and how could you attract anybody? Um, but, you know, all in all, again, the, the, it is a reality of when, where, would you, where would you add the extra nutritional chain, training in. Uh, it has to start somewhere. Uh, it would be nice um, if we started even just with university hospital cafeterias and started to incorporate better nutrition in the dietetics department. The people that got all bent out of shape uh, over this comment were registered dietitians. And I think it's funny because again um, obviously Addie Delaney Minorich is a registered dietitian and some of my best friends are registered dietitians but they don't work in hospitals and the hospitals are owned by the food service companies and they're owned the dietetic departments are owned by the food service companies down to the point of how it's how the food uh, nutrients are calculated what food comes into the hospital, what menus are available. Um, what they give to patients and the time they're allowed with patients and what they have to work with. Um, So so dieticians in hospitals are, are truly limited by the hospital. And if you're owned by the hospital, that is trying to keep costs down as far as giving food to people and trying to increase revenue by procedures and billing codes then they're not going to be real supportive of real marked dietary changes either. And, you know, there's this make the patient happy by giving them Salisbury steak and red jello. So that's really, that's really not going to happen. So, um, And outpatient-wise, well, there's, there's plenty of opportunities for registered dietitians to um, hang out their own shingle and practice. They're limited by their, their, their um, accreditation a little bit. Uh, And how do they get patients? Uh, Unfortunately, the way insurances are structured, um, you know, Medicare, traditional uh, insurances only cover very short visits for things like diabetes and kidney failure and, um, you know, perhaps post-op state in some, you know, severe malnutrition and then some, you know, newborn type of of services. But there's not a lot of um, reimbursement to support a registered dietitian in an outpatient setting you know ideally in our practice i am very proud to say that i have a full-time registered dietitian um, but we don't bill insurance um, if part of our membership practice our membership fee includes the ability to have contact with a registered dietitian for as much as you need our registered dietitian just happens to also be an electrophys- not, not, not an exercise physiologist so um, she wears more than one hat and uh, um, you know helps design uh, programs uh, uh, down that line as well and for our wellness practice and wellness challenges but that works out well because we can tag team people um you know as a physician again if i don't walk the walk how can i expect somebody else to walk the walk so if i'm not healthy and i'm not eating a plant-based diet referring somebody to my registered dietitian to get you know i mean i guess if you keep if you've referred out i can ignore it and she can take care of things or he can take care of things but um, the reality of it is um, everything works better with the, with the United Front. And you know, um, I, I believe we, we do take a lot of biochemistry and we know a lot of biochemical pathways. We learn that in medical school. We just don't apply them to food groups uh, and learn about that. On the other hand, in the training of uh, the dietetics training, um, those programs are often um, funded very heavily by, uh, the dairy industry and other, um, um, you know, food industries that again direct curriculum and programs. So, the reality of it is, there are very few plant-based registered dietitians, and most registered dietitians you know, cringe at the idea of being plant-based. That they're that we're going to miss out on some nutrient because they've been brainwashed by the dairy industry and and so forth. And of course, they want to eat what they want to eat. And as a group, they're pretty nice people. And they really don't want to, you know, it's hard if you meet somebody for 15 minutes to really tell them that they go need to, you know, change everything you've learned your whole life is wrong and you need to do it this way. It's almost impossible. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's really a, a good suggestion that the, the representatives say, yeah, we need more nutrition education in medical schools, but we need. Um, a lot more than education, we need to do implementation and, you know, um, look at what kind of food the hospitals are providing. Uh, the nursing staff in hospitals are um, almost all overweight. Um, you know, there's a high degree of, of obesity because of the food that's available, the junk food, the takeout. Um, so if people aren't setting a good example all through the healthcare inpatient, outpatient setting. Then how are you going to say, well, you just happen to have heart disease, so so you have to eat this way. So, you know, I, again, I was kind of surprised that the, the registered dietitians that made comments, and again, it was limited, you know, to a few people. But most people got all bent out of shape that you know they didn't want the doctor taking over, um, you know, uh, nutrition in the practice of medicine. Um, Unfortunately, that's the only way we're going to get around this uh, when we start figuring out that we need to take care of people and change their nutrition and Figure out how to get them off of these medications and and actually start looking in at some of these medications and realizing just how little they do Um, And and until we do that as physicians, we're we're not going to go. We're not going to make it anywhere and a physician and a registered dietitian need to work together in order to get people off the medications. If some, for some strange reason, there's a plant-based dietitian and she gets these people on a great diet, but the doctor's only seeing the patient every you know, every once in a while and doesn't change the medications or afraid to change the medication because they don't know the benefits of nutrition. Then you get these people with low blood pressures and low sugars and they're walking around like zombies because they changed their diet, but now they're, they're actually feel worse than they did before uh, with all the medications they're on. So it's not quite as simple as what the representative who didn't look all that healthy was asking for, but I thought it was a nice step in the right direction saying, hey, we ought to think about changing things, you know, a little bit. The the next study I was going to look at um, was looking at risk factors for an acute myocardial infarction in young adults. You heard it, young adults, 18 to 55 and which risk factors were worse in women, which risk factors were worse in men, and should we target people any differently? And um, they used the NHANE uh, uh, data. They actually looked at 2,264 patients, and they actually used controls, 2,264 controlled, that didn't have heart disease or didn't have heart attacks. And they looked at seven risk factors, depression, diabetes, hypertension, smoking, family history, uh, low-income hyperlipidemia. And what they noted was that diabetes uh, was a bigger risk factor, more prevalent in women, as well as depression and hypertension. And, you know, what struck me with this is, yep, these risk factors are bad, and young people are having acute myocardial infarctions. But these are the people that think that they're bulletproof, 18 to 55 years of age, Um, young women tend to have more plaques, you know, so you can't pick them up with a stress test. So if we took everybody at 20 and decided to do a stress test on them, we're not going to pick up those soft plaques because they're not hemodynamically significant until they rupture. But, you know, I I was kind of blown away um, that it was that easy to find uh, people in this young category and looking at you know, the, the, the risk factors. Uh, typical women, typically women present later and with a, a bigger heart attack. Um, again, they ignore the symptoms. Um, if you look at women, you know, there is some protection before menopause for cardiovascular disease, but if you're a diabetic or smoke, it, it's, um, um, those, those protections are gone. Uh, so when, in, you know, in the span of my practice, when I, you know, I think the youngest person I've ever seen have a bypass. that was a woman was uh, 30 years old, and uh, she was a diabetic um, that smoked. So certainly diabetes is a huge risk factor, and with the increased uh, obesity in the population, uh, that, that really is dialing back the uh, age of first heart attacks to a much younger and younger age group. and, and we just don't think about it. Uh, when young people kill over from a heart attack or have a big one. We just don't think that's something that um, occurs, but it, it does occur. And the number of people that don't seek medical attention, don't, don't have regular evaluations, meaning, you know, simple blood pressure screen, a body mass index screen, lipid level, uh, glucose evaluation um, is pretty, pretty rare in a young age group. A lot of people don't have insurance. So they don't go to the doctor. Um, they don't want to pay for the blood test. I will tell you that if you do not have insurance, you can go to a le- you can go online and have labs drawn at Quest and pay a draw fee and get a pretty good cash price. Ultra is one of the companies that we use for people that don't have insurance. So there's ways to get your blood work checked. I know there are, you know now dock in the box uh blood do your own you know do your own healthcare care things out there um not quite that easy um to, to get those things there'll be a doctor that'll interpret things but again you know what do you do with the information what i know people that have ordered a bunch of blood tests on themselves that have just wasted their money because they order things that they they don't need but there's these packages out there that um the companies the independent labs say that you know you need but you really don't need So, um, you know, working with a healthcare professional does get you the right test order, uh, hopefully, most of the time. But you really only need uh, a few tests in a young population to see where we're going. And, and again, um, if you just look at physical characteristics of people, you go in, stick your arm in the blood pressure machine at uh, CVS or uh, Walgreens, and you get on the scale, uh, you you know, you're well on your way to... uh, seeing whether or not you're, you're at risk or not. Because if you, if you flunk those two tests, um, chances are the diabetes and the high cholesterol are not far behind it if they're not already there. And to think they won't grab you until you're 65 or 70, you know, you're, you're missing the boat. So, um, you know, it, it, I think this study is important in that it, it shows that people can get sick at any age, and people are getting sicker at younger ages because of what we're eating out there. I wanted to leave you with a couple quick tidbits for the evening. Uh, First of all, uh, a quick dinner recipe um, at our grocery store, Publix, here in Florida. But a lot of grocery stores have dried bean soup in a bag. So they have 15 bean soup uh, already in the bag with a seasoning packet. That seasoning packet is not bad. Uh, Soak the beans during the day. Put them in your Instapot. Um, You can add a leek. Uh, Or an onion, a little tomato paste, a little lemon juice, um, you know, some pepper and garlic in there as well for a little extra spice and um, and maybe a little bit of pasta at the end. Put that with it, have bean soup with uh, some small noodles or without the noodles um, and a salad. Great, great dinner. That's what we had tonight. It was delicious. The other thing I wanted to just mention was sugar cane. And um, how I came about sugar cane was. Um, it's like, why why would she talk about sugar? Isn't sugar bad? You know, um, sugar's sucrose. But in Florida, we grow sugarcane, and you can actually grow it down where I live in Southwest Florida. And I actually went over to a friend's farm to get some um, bananas that he was harvesting. He has some banana trees, namwa bananas. If you haven't had um, different varieties of Bananas, uh, besides the public's regular old bananas, um, I'd encourage you to try, but very thin skin. The reason why I can't get them, you know, many places is that they don't they don't transport well. Um, The commercial bananas that we have now have a thick skin so they they can be hauled and and trained and bust and tracked and all those other kind of things, but I went over to um, his um, farm to get some Namwa bananas and as I was uh, talking to him a little bit, he said uh, he opened a freezer and he, and he said, showed me his sugarcane juice that he had frozen. He said, "You want to try?" And I was like, "Nah, I don't want to try. I think like, I don't need any sugar." Um, and I said, "Well, what do you do with it?" And he said, "Well, you know, we we drink it with lime juice." And I was like, "Huh?" And it's like, "Okay, you know, I'll try." Um, it's, again, it's hot and humid down here. I'm thinking, well, maybe after you know a long run, a little glass of sugarcane juice with some lime might not be a bad thing you know, again, and, you know, keep it, keep it under wraps, hydration, restoring my glycogen stores. But, um, when I looked up, you know, uh, what are the health benefits of any of sugarcane and, you know, sugarcane is a, is a plant kind of looks like bamboo, but the leaves and stalks actually have a lot of antioxidants, um, and phytosteroids and phenic, uh, and the phenolic acid, um, there's some diuretic properties to the sugarcane juice, um, anti-inflammatory, analgesic, um, and they've been used in India a lot to treat uh, bladder symptoms, urinary tract infections, cystitis. Uh, they've been used to treat jaundice and um, and um, uh, liver failure. So, you know, there actually is some benefit to the sugarcane juice, although it is very high calorie, high energy, so it's not something that you would want to drink on a regular basis, but... It's not uh, you, know, your mother's table sugar that we're looking at. To get to table sugar requires uh, condensation and a lot of processing to get to that point. However, brown sugar and molasses that come from sugarcane again, can retain some of those health benefits um, uh, you know, in this unrefined form. So sugarcane juice is 70 to 75 percent water. It's 15 percent sucrose, 13, 15 percent. and it also has 10 to 15 percent fiber. So it's not near as bad as it sounds. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, So this weekend, after my long run, uh, I'm going to actually try a little sugar cane juice with lime, which brings me a little bit to hydration. Um, And, you know, I've always told everyone, drink to thirst, drink to thirst, drink to thirst. And after our 50 miler and our little, um, you know, electrolyte, uh abnormalities and michael you know we decided to start experimenting with some uh, electrolyte replacement drinks during long runs i don't think if you're going out for an hour uh you certainly water is perfectly fine i think um say you're out at the beach or um you know out for a long time and you're eating food i don't think you have to worry about any kind of electrolyte drink certainly in your day-to-day life i would not worry about electrolyte drink the only thing that gl- that um Gatorade or something like that has to do is to make you more thirsty and and sugar and calories that you don't need. But if you're going on a long run or an endurance run or you're out, uh, you know, more than an hour, um, you know, with heavy exertion, heavy sweating, you know, cutting down sugar cane or doing a heavy yard work. Um, you know, I, I think that there probably is some, some role for an, an electrolyte drink that is relatively low in, in sugar for the most part, uh, depending on what you're doing. Uh, you know, again, if you're trying to get your calories from liquid, uh, we tried an electrolyte drink called Tailwind last weekend and one called Gnarly. I found that I can't really get enough fluid in um, me to get the calories I need, so I probably would have to do some combination Um, Or make it concentrated and do some water. I'm not, you know, haven't got got it figured out that much. But, you know, too much fluid, too much free water can cause a problem, a a bad thing called hyponatremia. So for the most part, you're better off being dehydrated during an activity than overhydrated. The risk of hyponatremia and uh, sudden death from brain brain stem herniation is a real thing with hyponatremia which means excess water so if you were going to be out and you keep pumping excessive amounts of water and it's not it's a cool day um, you could get into trouble that with over water intoxication so to speak so drinking to thirst is still probably the best thing if you're out for extended periods of time then some electrolyte replacement you know, a lot of people used to weigh yourself before and weigh yourself after, and you really shouldn't lose a tremendous amount of weight after a long run. If somebody's losing, you know, three or four pounds, five pounds, there's a lot of water weight loss. Um, that you know, you may not be fully hydrated. Um, but um, you know, it's 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 a bit of a, a you know a individual. Um, decision you know i will tell you that being chronically dehydrated you know your tissues aren't getting the fluid that they need so you should be peeing clear you should listen to your body when you feel uh thirsty um and you should make a point to drink hydrating liquids um you know if you're watching your weight then things with added sugar are not going to be into your best interest um drinking a lot of uh coffee and tea that are somewhat diuretics not going to be in your good interest. so for the most part you know uh water coconut water uh not coconut milk are are good things to hydrate with Um, and some green tea i mean you can mix it up you can certainly have some coffee but that shouldn't be your your only thing you can also get a fair amount of hydration from fruits and and you know leafy green vegetables uh raw vegetables so uh, you know that goes into your hydration as well Um, i still like a big bowl of fruit in the morning after i run uh, watermelons in season watermelon a lot of hydration to that so um you know Fresh fruit and berries is a is a good way to get some hydration as well. So, I don't know if that was clarifying or confusing, but that's kind of the kind of the way I do it. I think I'm going to cut it off there for today, but I'd like to thank you for listening, and take your health serious. Eat a colorful place, uh, eat a colorful plate, and um, drink to thirst. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening.